Hi, my name's Angus. And what did you bring today to the restart party? I brought with me a rather elegant aluminium tall lamp that I bought from a uh, furniture showroom years ago and it's never been working properly and I finally got round to bringing it in to get it fixed. It's worked? It's worked. Andrew did a superb job. It took him about 15 minutes and he fixed it. It's perfect and it looks great and I'm really happy. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for The Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. The clip that you heard at the top of the show was from a restart party a couple of years ago in Kentish Town. Because I've been recording this podcast for quite a few years now, we have a lot of archival audio from restart parties, which are events that the Restart Project puts on where people with fixing knowledge and skill help people with broken electronics to fix their devices. The Restart Project also collects data in other formats at those parties, and that data can be really useful at scale. The repairs are logged in a database with key information about the product, the repair outcome, and crucially, some narrative explanation about the repair process itself. Here's how Angus's lamp was logged at the time. Wouldn't turn on, repaired the switch, status fixed. Another lamp was fixed at the same event, and here is the description of that problem and its solution. Dodgy dimmer cleaned and rewired, status fixed. Sometimes the explanations of the problems and solutions are very methodical, they're very crystal clear, but sometimes it's a little bit more joicy and it's top of the head, free thought. The voice you just heard was Monique Spack who is working with the Restart Project and partner organisations to bring together and analyse almost 30,000 repair records from across the world. In today's episode, I talk to Monique about the work that she's been doing, the importance of data collection, the different kinds of data collected at repair events, and the personal and social aspects of data. Breaking up our conversation, we'll hear some more archival data from a restart party that took place in Wembley a few years ago. Hi, my name is Monique Spack. That's spelt with a Z, but it's silent. And I'm a technologist and a data wrangler, and I've been doing that professionally since 1989, but it was a hobby before that. And I started working on some restart project data a few months ago. How did you get interested in technology? It was one of those things you sort of just did in the 1960s and 70s. You know, you had to put plugs on things, and you had to fix things, and we didn't have any money to just buy new things all the time. So it was just one of those things he did and my dad was a mechanic he built cars fixed cars he was in world war ii he was a spanner down the bottom of merchant navy ships and stuff at home we were surrounded by bits of old cars and tools and clanging and mechanics and all that sort of stuff so it was just normal really so it's just like part of everyday life did you get interested in it as as you got older it wasn't something that became a hobby it was just something you just did i mean i I moved out of home i lived in flats 
flats. I had to wire things myself. I lived in squats. I had to build my own kitchens and do my own plumbing and all that sort of stuff. That's just how it was, you know. You fixed your own clothes, you fixed your own sewing machine. <laughs> it was not something I ever thought of as being any kind of hobby for me. It was just something you just did. What about data? When did data come into your life? Well, I suppose when you say interested in technology, oh gosh, when was it? 1984 or something? I bought a little home computer and taught myself to code. That was just a hobby for a few years, but I got a job doing that. I was a sort of a, a junior coder, apprentice, if you like, and right from day one, data was something you dealt with on a daily basis. So that was like 1989. And over the years, data has just become more important. Every company that I've worked for, either permanent or as a freelancer, they've become less interested in the actual code and the user interface and things like that. For me anyway, because I'm sort of a back-end person, I don't do all the kind of pretty stuff on the front end of websites and stuff. But when you go to companies, it used to be that they were very interested in the servers and the code and the middleware and all that sort of stuff. And now they want their data dealt with. Their data has become more important to them. It used to be something they didn't seem to value very much. It was something you just got as you were working away with your various programs and things that they did. And it was an end result. And now they realize that that data is actually quite valuable in various forms. And they're digging out archives and maintaining more data, collecting more data and so on. They've actually got plans for it these days. So over the last few years, more and more my job has become dealing with data rather than dealing with software. I mean, and data is one of these interesting things, isn't it, where it's like once they paid attention to it, there's really good things they can do with that data. And then there's maybe some not so good things that they can do with data. And so the people who understand that data, I often think are the ones who have the kind of keys to society in a way that I don't have. I use a lot of tech, but I don't really understand what it's doing and more importantly, what data it's taking. So what's your role within the Restart community and what are you working on at the moment? Well, I was just an innocent bystander really to start with, going to repair parties when they happen locally and gradually just sort of got a little bit more involved with things like Rosie the Restarter. There was, you know, Janet threw us a little party thing for all the women fixers just to talk about doing women's skill shares. So I kind of got involved in that really, which got me a bit more involved in the Restart project. And then it turned out they had this data and they're starting to think about what to do with this data. As they asked me along, we had a chat and then they came back and said, actually, we'd like to work on this for a few months and see what happens. I guess we started in about beginning of this year. We started looking at the data, which is very ragged. I mean, it's crowdsourced data, as it were. People have come together and this data gets cobbled together at live repair events and then it gets put into a database and evolved kind of organically over time. There aren't tablets sitting next to the repairers with questionnaires where they can sort of fill it all out efficiently and everything like that. Basically, it's usually somebody with a marker pen and a big piece of paper at an event writing down what's come in, has it been fixed, hasn't it been fixed. And then that gets put into the database after the event. It's all very dependent on the point of view of the people who are repairing things and who are collecting the data. And so you end up with, I mean, it's a really nice amount of data, but you wouldn't call it cohesive or perfect or anything like that. I used to work in banking and telecoms and things like that. And if any of those people saw the kind of data I work on now, they'd just throw their hands up because it's not nice, neat data that's all in pretty columns and it all adds up and everything. This is data that's been put in by real people who have their own opinions and their own understanding of things and they sort of type what they feel. So it's more like short novels than tabular spreadsheets of anything. <laughs> you know? My name's Amjad Ali. I brought my laptop here because you had some 
problems, they're running very slow, and to hope that somebody could come and sort of help me here. You've tried for a while to get it fixed, and it's not been conclusively fixed, right? Am I right? That's correct. I mean, I tried at home first, various things. Didn't seem to be working. I came here... The gentleman there, he was really, really helpful. He spent a lot of time, actually. I'm surprised that he had the patience. It's partly fixed, but he's given me some indicators, told me what to do when I got home, so I'm sure I could try certain things and help improve. In that respect, I guess it's a bit more like experiential data collection that you do with social sciences, where you can kind of sit down and get people to talk about themselves, and then you can treat that in a mathematical way and process that, but on paper it's just little blurbs. What do you think the difference is between kind of ragged data, as you call it, and this kind of more streamlined stuff, and is there advantages and disadvantages to the two different kinds of data that you've worked with? The thing about the ragged data, the crowdsourced data and all the rest of it, is that at least you've got it. If you sort of wait for some perfect collection process to come about, you'll never get that data. The reason we have some really interesting history data these days is because once upon a time people kept diaries and they wrote letters to each other and that's really ragged data, you know. So it's much the same thing now. You've got people who are sitting down and fixing things and they very, very helpfully scrawl a note about how they've done something. It's like a mini blog, 200 characters or something like that. And the fact that they've gone to the trouble to do that is fantastic, you know. I mean, it's not neat data but we're trying to get it into a sort of a shape whereby we can sort of show the world what this data means and find some stories in the data you know and and give it to people sort of open source it so that people can use this data for whatever they want to do with it. My name is Anna I came to fix my ice cream maker machine. And and the fix worked? Yes it did yeah. What was wrong with it? There was a fuse inside that was blown now it's fixed and ready to be used. Yeah and it's a, a lovely sunny day right so it's a perfect to use it today already Why do you think that it's important to collect and share repair data? Well, it's important to collect and share most data, except for perhaps Facebook's kind of idea of collecting and sharing data. As far as just collecting information about our daily lives, what we throw away, what we use, what we fix, what we keep, what we repair, is interesting stuff. And it's the kind of thing that people don't really think about until you present them with it. And it's like people love watching shows on archaeology and most of archaeology tends to be going through middens, you know, they're going through people's waste <laughs> to find out what happened in the past. And it's kind of the same thing, really. And, and I actually say that I work on a lot of museum data and I get a lot of historians and curators and people like that who look at me going, oh, I don't know how you could work on this, it's so dull and everything. I say, well, it's just like an archaeological dig for me, digging into this data and you're sort of uncovering the lives of people who put that data there, <laughs> It can uncover stories and maybe one day, one day, you know, in 50 years time or something, we're all still here. The archaeological programs then will be looking at, oh, we've got this database from 50 years ago. (laughs) And they'll be doing the same sort of time team type thing, (laughs) but on data instead of bones or whatever. (laughs) 
absolutely. I mean, I guess it's 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 got like as you say, like social value, potential history value, and I guess there's an environmental value as well because we get to know actually what we're doing with our technology, and often we don't know at all what we're doing with our tech these days. I guess maybe all days, I don't know, but definitely these days. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll hopefully hold up a bit of a mirror. People will be able to look at that and go, "Oh, good lord, look at the number of that particular phone that actually gets fixed and lasts for four or five years rather than one year." It can give us that kind of information. I mean, there's practical uses, I guess, potentially for people who make the technology as well, because they're told which ones work and which ones don't, and then they can potentially improve them. I mean, it might eventually sway manufacturers and people who are selling this technology and the rest of it, because it might be a case that people might be able to use this kind of data to make purchasing decisions and say, well, you know, that brand there seems to be lasting very well. They read Amazon reviews and all that sort of thing, you know, but that data is not necessarily very reliable or truthful even. We might be able to show them sort of real data that helps people make purchasing decisions and purchasing decisions do on a big enough scale sway manufacturers to change their approach to what they make and what they do. The Open Repair Alliance has come up with an initial open repair data standard. What is it? It's just an attempt to try and gather together by looking at all the different data that belongs to different partner organisations like the Repair Cafe and you've got these different organisations, fix-it clinics and stuff and in different countries and they're all doing a similar sort of thing but they do it in their own way and they're all collecting data and we're pulling together in fact just in the last two weeks we've gathered together a lot of this data where we're looking at how we can pull out the common threads from the data so that we can use those to aggregate a lot of the information so we can provide visualizations and reports that span the world span different languages, different countries, different ways of repairing things, different approaches to repair and events and data. So the standard is just a case of saying, right, well, these are the basic things we can pull out of the data. We can say what it was that got fixed, what brand it was, when it was fixed, what the problem with it was and whether it was fixed or not. There's a lot of data that gets collected. Some places collect all sorts of data, but when we look at all the data together across the different partners, there's a small sub set of that that are common that's the stuff we want to pull out and be able to use it in an open way so that we can use that to visualize report and we can actually potentially give it to people so that they can do their thing with it as well and what does open mean when it's applied to data collection it means it should be quite transparent i mean it should be first of all auditable it should be held in a repository somewhere it should have provenance we should know where it came from who provided it what the raw state of the data was what manipulations were carried out on it in what format it's available for anyone to use i mean open just means it's quite transparent as well the process of collecting it and manipulating it and so on and so forth is quite transparent. I know that open source often means that everybody can use it as well because it's out there for everybody. It's usable by anybody. There's licensing issues around it as well so that it would be essentially licensed so that people could use it for non-commercial purposes or commercial purposes with attribution. And, you know, I mean, it depends on the exact license. We've got our first big aggregation of data. We're looking at it. We're deciding how to present this and what to include and what not to include. With Monique's support, in September 2019, the Restart Project and its partners published the first datasets using the Open Repair Data Standard. 
Making open data, documenting repairs done by volunteers, available to everyone for the first time. If you're interested in reading it, exploring it, analysing it, studying it, it's available from openrepair.org. What does it feel like going through repair data from around the world and do you see patterns emerging? There's just been so much data in the past week or something. It's kind of swimming in my head. I have been through a lot of it. For me, the most interesting bit that I picked up on pretty quickly was that all the different organisations tend to have their own way of categorising. One of the things that every organisation asks is what kind of thing is it that's being repaired? And we have a product category field. So we sort of say, is this a electrical item? Is it not electrical? Is it a kettle, a small kitchen item? Is it a mobile phone, a desktop computer, a laptop? And each organisation has their own list of their categories. And it's uh, kind of interesting the way the people have come up with the categories. For instance, the Restart Project categories are based on mostly electrical devices and they're split up according to the kind of products that you can get carbon offset information about so that we can find out about the waste implications of those particular things so that they happen to know that laptops a certain size tend to produce x amount of waste or whatever so their categories are set up like that and so when you look at them i think to a lay person they might be wondering why have you got kettle and then why have you got small kitchen item aren't they both the same thing but there's a reason for that then when you look at somebody else's categories like there's a, a german group they tend to think in terms of components and then I think the repairers work out right what's the main component of this thing and that's how I'll categorize it so for instance I saw something like electric blanket but it was categorized as textile not electrical I think that was because there was a hole in it so it was a textile repair whereas had something been wrong with the controller of the electric blanket or the wiring or something it might have been underneath electrical home appliance and it would have been categorized like that and so their categories involve wood so they've got wood textile electrical (laughs) non-electrical and and so on and so forth. And then they're broken down further beyond that so that you've got electrical power tool, non-electrical tool, you know, non-electrical gardening implement, electrical gardening implement, and so on and so forth. It can get really, really complicated, and poor person who's sitting there repairing something, if you give them this list of stuff and say, well, decide what it's going to be. And I can see a few instances, I reckon, where people have just given up, you know, and they've got, they've filed lawnmower under textiles or something, you know, and so you get this kind of the tail end of the data, which is like just nonsensical. There's not a lot you can do about that, because I have found in the past, and I've worked on some really big crowd source databases and I find that if you try and impose a lot of validation a lot of requirements on the user to pick from this list pick from that list and it's all mandatory people just end up just picking anything just for the sake of getting to the end of the form you know and then you've got rubbish data you've got really rubbish data so I have found that don't make anything mandatory don't force people to pick things and just feel blessed if they do pick something because they've probably thought about it then you know so in my opinion empty fields and the data is better than having people who have picked things because they've just given up and don't know what to pick but the categorization is a really interesting one because it, it forms the basis for a lot of our reporting so it's always going to be a bit messy it's not going to be perfect but well what can you do off the top of my head I'd say it's between 80 and 90 percent pretty good though I'd say between 80 and 90 percent because I go through and actually have a look at the categories and have a quick scan of the text even though quite a lot of that's in German and Dutch and what have you but you can sort 
of tell what's going on and people are generally putting the right categories together. When you look at our data, I think you're going to have to say, right, okay, you're going to find anomalies, you're going to find some weird things, but I think the majority of the data is pretty worthwhile. Have you seen any patterns emerging when you've been wading through all of this stuff? Well, insofar as the different countries, I suppose, I mean, most of the data we've got is from Germany and the Netherlands. That's the other thing, too, is you can't say that they're more interested in repair than anyone else. They're certainly better at collecting repair data than anyone else. We don't know. I mean, there could be all sorts of repair going on all over the world, but we don't have their data. We don't, you know, they might be collecting data, they might not. We don't know. It's a self-selected sample as well. You're getting data from people who want to fix things for a start so they're going to be different from people out in the population who aren't interested in fixing stuff yeah. so there's all sorts of things like that and of course these people are fixing things within an organization that is interested in collecting data and then that organization has to be interested in sharing that data so there's a pipeline there which gives us a bit of a narrow focus but from the data that we've got the dutch repairs tend to be quite different to the english repairs so then again mostly here for the restart project most of the stuff that's brought into repair is electrical and that might have something to do with the way the restart parties are kind of pitched. It, right. It's more about, like, bring along your electric devices and things like that. And it's got pictures of laptops on and radios and stuff like that. And in the Netherlands, the top ranking repair is clothing. So a huge amount of clothing getting fixed. And there's a lot of devices as well, a lot of bicycles, you know, one pair of skates and <laughs> things like this. I don't know, maybe it's just the repair cafes are just pitched differently or something. And uh, what's the most peculiar? or a few of the most peculiar items that you've come across when analysing Restart's data? Well, Restart's data is not very weird. It's pretty normal stuff. I mean, I haven't seen anything really unusual in the categories for the Restart project. And the Dutch and the German stuff, I'm not sure. Like, I came across one bong in Amsterdam (laughs) that somebody had repaired, you know, and uh, somebody went to great lengths to say exactly what was wrong with the bong and what they did to fix it. There was a pair of socks, which somebody went to a huge detail about how they fixed this pair of socks and how they'd never fixed a pair of socks before. As I mentioned, it was a pair of skates. But some of it loses something in translation. It's because I'm looking at it and some of this data has had to go through Google Translate. So I don't know what a dog polisher is, I'm afraid, <laughs> or a cat fountain. <laughs> I mean, it might be an automatic feeding station for a cat, I imagine. But anyway, we file those under miscellaneous because we've got no idea what they are. <laughs> I must ask them when I go there what a dog polisher is. My name's Cam. I've got an Xbox 360 that's got the red ring of death. It's been stored away in a cupboard for the last year or so. I've been hoping that one day I can fix it, so that's why I'm here today. You and Faraz have been working on this for quite a long time today, yeah, right? Yeah, two hours so far, yeah. I came in at just before one and it's three o'clock now, so we've had to go and buy some new equipment. We bought two heat sinks and we bought some thermal paste, we bought some thermal pads. I bought some equipment first and then we had to take it back and get some more, so thankfully Maplin was around the corner, which was helpful. I'm pretty nervous because we've had to tear the whole thing apart. We cracked the side plate, unfortunately, so that made me a bit nervous. And then we've stripped the whole thing down the motherboard's out and I'm a bit nervous about whether we can put it back together again but if it doesn't work it's alright I mean it's been dead for a year anyway yeah we've been using a heat gun we used a standing knife we used certain clamps and things yeah we've used quite a lot of stuff when the manufacturer actually supplied the Xbox it has a lot less heat sinks and it has a lot less thermal pads but because the red ring of death gets caused by heating issues we're adding a lot more stuff to it now and so there's a conversation that's taking place about what should be added and where and how much and stuff so what you're adding is to try and stop it from overheating in the future 
and now we're adding some thermal pads to a couple of a, a few more chips on the back of the board and we're having to cut them down to size and stuff and stick them on but we're a bit unsure about whether everything's going to stay there because we, we think that it might just fall off so this is the last step now once these are on we have to put everything back together again and hopefully it'll switch on and work but we have no idea if it will or, or it won't right well i've spent about 30 pound on material so <laughs> let's see how it goes i'm hoping it's going to work out it's been very impressive to watch from afar i'll have to make sure i come back when you actually are at the moment of truth yeah. to catch your kind of reaction So restarters love fixing, which is a meticulous thing to do and it requires precision. Is it hard to capture that kind of meticulousness and precision effectively within the data? There are people who write a short novel in there about what the problem was, how they fixed it, how they advised, what they talked about, what kind of biscuits they had while they were repairing. They'd really go to town. And then there's other ones where there'd be just one word or nothing at all. So it really comes down to the person. I mean, there's some people who like to write a lot about what they've just done and others who don't. I can picture them, you know, there's people and they're sitting there fixing things and they're into that moment. Moment. And when it's over, they're on to the next thing. And if anyone said to them, so what did you do to fix that? Oh, pff, I can't remember. I just, you know, and it was fine. You know. What are the main challenges aggregating data from multiple organisations? What work needs to be done for this work to scale to larger data collection? Uh, Oh, well, automating the processes. I mean, at the moment, we're really just in the discovery phase. So, so, you know, we've got all these data sets and literally just feeding them into spreadsheets and databases to look at the differences, doing lots and lots of queries to find out what's unusual, find the anomalies, the exceptions, the commonalities and so on and so forth. And what we need to do to get them into a, a format that we can sort of unify and aggregate. The thing that needs to happen, should we wish to continue, down this road is automation of these processes because they're very time consuming at the moment very manual and time consuming yeah I can run some database queries and I can do this that and the other with spreadsheets and so on and so forth but it still takes a good day day and a half or something to take 20 30,000 repair records from one partner and another 20,000 from another partner and then just get them into something whereby you can produce a table of the two sets of data merged cohesive available for visualization and so on and so forth and we're not going to be able to spend a couple of days on one to two data sets and it's just going to be ridiculously expensive and time consuming and nobody's going to continue that forever talking to the partners we can get them hopefully to consider perhaps altering some of their collection processes methods you know so that they could change some of their fields and forms and so on so that they could be more closely aligned with the open repair data standard so that's one thing we can look at doing and then automating some sort of ingestion process maybe if they had a tablet or whatever and they were putting the information directly into the database that might be useful but then that's creating like technology in order to monitor the technology i mean i think you can tell already that there are some people who have sat down there and i have talked to some of the people who run events and stuff and some of them are sitting there with a tablet sometimes they've got a data person who goes around with a tablet and talks to 
the repairers and takes notes as they go around. Some repairers like to scribble down notes as they go along and others just rely on their memory after the event. Not everybody's going to want to sit there with a tablet sort of filling out a form as they do it and that might put people off repairing. I mean the main thing is that stuff gets repaired. That's more important than the data collection. The data collection is kind of a nice to have. It's not the be all and end all. The main thing is that people come to the repair parties, they fix their stuff, they think about their stuff and they meet other people and they socialise and they have a nice time basically. Right. I mean you're absolutely right that those kind of things can be barriers for sure. I used to work in children's centres in a borough of London doing story and song times on behalf of the library service and we needed to collect data because obviously that's how you prove you're doing your job and then that's how you keep getting paid. But at the same time there's people who maybe English isn't their first language or there's plenty of people who are dyslexic or have other obstacles for like writing things down and so the more technical you make it and the more questions you ask the more likely people are to like just turn around when they see you come into them and then you don't get any data. Yeah you can't overload the events with bureaucracy before during or after you want people to turn up you want the event organizers to turn up and not be like totally hassled by anything you want them to enjoy the time and you want everyone to come along and feel that it's productive and fun you know and that's the main thing so we've got to try and get the data collection bit into it sort of like sideways surreptitiously (laughs) because at the moment what happens at the repair events is that you have an organiser, somebody who is perhaps quite good at organising things, likes organising things, and then you have a number of fixers who will come along. What would be nice is if you had somebody who was into data who would come along and be the data gatherer while they're there, and they could wander about with a tablet, and they could go with a microphone. They could talk to people as they go around, collecting information as they go around. They could collate it all afterwards. They could have a tablet, and they could ask about repairs as they're going on or something like that. And there's lots of people who are interested in data. It would be a good opportunity for anyone who is interested in data collection and crowdsourcing and open source and everything. So as well as getting organisers and fixers into the repair scene, we could get data people on the ground at these events and that would be great. You know? Right. Yeah. Like bake, bake it into the actual what a restart party is. And you're right as well, like I am sometimes the person walking around a restart party holding a microphone asking them what's going on. And in a way, some of the stuff that I've done for the podcast is data that would be useful and could be used in that kind of way you know you're right as well that different people have different interests different ways of being we need all of those kind of people coming together to do the sort of stuff that the restart project's doing we thought well before we put the 16 20 30 bajillion screws back in let's put half of it back together just to the point where we can plug it in we plugged it in we're now getting red lights but it's a different kind of red lights normally if you get the red ring of death the reason why it's called the red ring i think is because it kind of circles in a ring but it's not doing that now it's just getting four lights together and i suspect it's some diddy little error so we don't know what it is at the moment but um it's not working still so you're getting a different red light yeah yes a different (laughs) formation basically to what we had before uh, there's not very much time left in this restart party, I think. No, there isn't. So you're kind of working against the clock now as well to heighten yeah, the stakes. Which is a shame. So the flashing red lights, four four flashing red lights, normally mean that the AV cable's not connected. We don't have the AV cable yeah, with us so to to test it. Hopefully that that m- might mean that it's working. Yeah, I didn't bring the AV cable with me because I thought it's probably just going to be surplus, just more things to carry. So it's a fix, Hopefully. probably. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. yeah. So thank you to Faraz. He's been very patient and he's been determined to get this thing fixed. So thanks to him. So now it's just the rest of the screws to go in and then you're done. Yeah, hopefully, yes, just in the nick of time. In your interaction with 
the community at restart parties and through these forms what feedback do you get from volunteers and what kind of things excite them the most i think it's mostly a social thing it's a combination of a social activity and a hobby it's like any people who join a club they join a cycling club or something like that it's very clubby in a way some of the social events i've been to have been very clubby on sunday i was down in brighton and it was a huge mods and rockers things and all the bikers and the mods were there and everything and it was a bit like that at fixer socials everyone gets together and they haven't seen each other for ages and they start talking about their new soldering kit and uh, some product that's just come out and I had to fix one last week I was just building this or you know yes they are interested in fixing and they're interested in seeing the results and what the achievements are and so on and so forth but I think it's kind of a clubby social thing on the whole as far as getting involved in the repair events that's what I think motivates people it's something to do that they can do that they are interested in that they might sit at home and do just their own bits and pieces but they find that you know when you go out you get to sit at tables you get to meet people chat with them I fixed a laptop for a lady who invited me around for dinner afterwards and I met a woman who is an illustrator who told me all about the building across the road from me it was a Russian illustration museum which I didn't even know about I would never have met that woman I would never have found out what was in that building across the road from me if I wasn't fixing a laptop for somebody right. <laughs> a Brixton repair party you know? <laughs> so it's kind of bizarre things like that I guess yeah and when you're like working with the data do you get a kind of sense of the personality of the people who are filling it in I guess like their frustration if it didn't get fixed or their joy when it did sometimes yeah there's a small set of French data there and and I don't know if it might have been just the one event or one group of people or something but they were particularly effervescent in their description of problems and solutions and so on you know things like magic touch with exclamation marks you know that's (laughs) did you fix it yeah. magic touch you know <laughs> things like that or, or uh, you know désolé <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah there should be more French data for sure because I think we'll get some real emotion into, <laughs> into the data it's sometimes the explanations of the problems the solutions are very methodical they're very crystal clear but sometimes it's a little bit more joicy and it's top of the head free thought you could probably put the whole lot through a natural language parser and come up with a set of personalities or right, something yeah, like that you probably could yeah because it's I mean it's data so it can be used in so many different ways and it reminds me what you're saying there of, of like when you do go to an actual physical restart party when there's a success you get the little smiley face on the board there is an emotional element to the work that happens in restart parties yeah. and it's worth keeping that in mind I guess because emotions are important data points I guess well, everyone likes to have their picture taken with the product and the fixed sign at the end of it don't they and they smile for the camera there's this record of people who got things fixed which is something nice that happens I'm Ray and I'm here because my amp doesn't work. Is it still not working? It's way? working now. Andrew fixed it and it's it's perfect now. Wow. It wasn't turning on when I was at home. I bought it here and he yeah, spent a few minutes with it, looked over it and tested it, put some weird meters on it to see whether there's a current going through it and took it from there. That's a real success story. I mean, it's not a guarantee that you'll get something fixed when you bring it into a restart party. That's great. And I'm, I'm relieved because I was going to actually take it to get recycled the other day. So, you know, I'm glad I didn't take it down and I actually heard about this today and I came down and, you know, I'm really happy. I'm going to go home and hook up the amp and listen to some music.
What's your vision? What would you like to, to see emerge from this work that you're doing with the data? I mean, as a technical person, it's always nice to see a, a set of data go out that's got provenance and transparency and it's available. And the best thing of all is when you see other people using it. I use other people's open data and, and I always email them and say, look, I did this with it. You know, And they're always delighted that somebody's done something with their data. They've gone to all the trouble of producing this data set. So when somebody else uses it, they're delighted. And we'd be the same, you know, if we can produce something that people use. And you never know what people are going to use it for. So it's a complete surprise. So that would be great. I mean, I don't have any grand epic ambitions or anything like that for the data. But just even if it got out there and one or two people found a use for it, they might be students or, or they might be somebody doing a dissertation or even just playing around, making a little app for themselves or something like that. You know, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I did a survey of a thousand men's thoughts about masculinity and that's available online as open source data and you know occasionally I'll get an email from a student who's using it it's like magic it's like you're just like living your life and you're like whoa this thing I did now five years ago is having this effect in a different part of the world and all of that it's super exciting what influence do you think that this data can have I guess I'll keep that open as a question well yeah I mean it could it could it could influence all sorts of things really if it's put into context properly so that people know that it's got veracity it's got provenance and people can rely on this data and say this is real data that we can look at and we can draw our conclusions from and they can use it to, as I said before, inform purchasing decisions. I mean, that would be nice. There's that kind of influence. But even just... Uh, well in fact not just even just if it actually influenced people to just go to repair parties or even just fix their stuff at home just sort of go oh yeah you can fix stuff here's people fixing stuff I can just fix that I don't have to throw it away you know I mean just if you could influence people in that direction it would be good Since recording this conversation with me, Monique travelled to FixFest in Berlin with Restart to meet up with some of the other organisations that are collecting data. Together they did fault categorization of thousands of records of laptops, which led to some really useful insights and helped them to decide the next steps for their collaboration. The hope is that this data can feed into better product regulations at an EU level for laptops. At the moment, it's only manufacturer data that influences these processes. Ultimately, as Monique reminds us, even after wrestling with spreadsheets, creating reports, doing the work to try and influence wider policy, we still need to remember that there is a social and human aspect to the data. With the Open Repair Data Standard being used to look at data at the scale of tens of thousands, it's also important to remember that the statistics represent people and communities who are connected through bonds of shared interest, friendship and care for the planet. If you'd like to dive into our data and help us and others to learn from it, then please go to openrepair.org. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website 
and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.